Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. everybody happy new year i hope you've had a wonderful holiday season boy i'm happy today because i have one of my best friends in the studio with me and we're going to cover a lot of ground and we're going to have some various topics that we talk about today so my guest is amelia shaper hi amelia hello jill happy new year i'm so glad to have you back in the studio you've been on the show a couple of times and formerly, you were the executive director of the Colorado Alzheimer's Association, the Colorado chapter. But you've been promoted. Yes. And you have a new super important job. So tell my caregiver nation what you're doing now, your job title, if, it's, if you can get that out because it's so <laughs> long. <laughs> it is long, Jill, but it's such... Um... It's the perfect step, I think, in my career at the Alzheimer's Association. I'm the Senior Director of Growth and Engagement Strategy for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And I'm excited to talk to you more and tell you what all of that means today. Oh, I would love to know what all that means. So for beginning the new year, it's 2022, we're just going to have a coffee chat today. Right? We both Perfect. got it. We've got, we've both got our tea. We actually beverage. have a tea chat because yes. we both have tea. <laughs> so what does your job entail specifically? And then we'll talk about what impact you think it's going to have. You bet. Well, I, I think you've talked about the Alzheimer's Association so much on this show. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that we try to do is really just show up in communities. We have... 75 chapters across the country, and um, more than double that of actual offices across the country. And so being a part of communities is extremely important to us and being there for communities. But one of the things we realized um, several years ago is not all communities are created equally. Not, right. all, not all communities um, access services or access help in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so particularly communities of color there can be a trust issue, and, and that trust issue is seated in some realities, unfortunately. And so we realized as an organization that we need to do more. So part of what I do is work with our 75 chapters across the country to really look at who are their communities and how do we go out and listen to those communities to really understand what they need from us that might be unique and different than what we normally and typically have offered. So that is what I've been doing uh, for the past six months. And it's been uh, exciting and also frustrating and challenging, but mostly I just think there's so much opportunity there. Well, I just think that's a perfect job for you. I really do because of just your love of people and how you are such an empath. You really feel their feelings. You recognize the things that they need, and you've always You've always had that. Oh, thanks, Jill. It takes one to know one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we talk about diversity, 
we have known for quite some time that, as an example, the Hispanic community has a tendency to want to take care of their people by themselves. They don't reach out for help. And that can be really difficult. Let's talk about that group for just a moment. Sure. So let me tell you what we know first. Um, We know that Hispanic and Latino individuals are one and a half times as likely to get Alzheimer's disease. So uh, that alone, we know that there are higher numbers within that population um, who are at risk. And, you know, it's it is true that an organization like ours and many of the great organizations out there are looking for how do we build that trust so that we can be there to help people along this journey. Because as you know, it is a long, sometimes difficult, sometimes strange, sometimes rewarding journey to be a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia. So we have a sense that no one should do that alone. No one should have to go that alone. Right. And I think one of the strengths of the Hispanic Latino community is they are so family oriented in general. They are, I mean, that is such a beautiful thing about Hispanic Latino families, but it can also be a challenge because um, it leaves families to often feel isolated Mm -hmm. and as if they can't reach out to others for help. And so that is where we're trying to really get in and understand how can we be a resource and a supplement to that family in those cases where family is available, because that's not true for everyone. So how did you do that? How do you reach out? Do you have, you know, community forums? Are you um, translating information um, into Spanish for them? I remember when I first started volunteering at the Alzheimer's Association, one of the things that I was trying to do was translate uh, all the documents that we sent out to people who called the helpline into Spanish. Yep. Unfortunately, I, I speak a very small amount of Spanish, but mainly because I'd worked in the hotel industry and had a lot of Hispanic workers. So I learned how to communicate with them. And then I took an interest in that. But it's it wasn't necessarily easy to translate all that. And then it kind of got a little bit stalled out for a little bit. But what ways do you utilize to get their attention, to, to gain their trust? Yeah, sure. Well, I would say we use three primary ways. The first is to partner with organizations that are already embedded within and trusted sources in the Hispanic Latino community. So a good example of that is the National Association uh, for Hispanic Nurses. Oh, nice. Um, They are one of our national partners. And across the country, we are working with them as volunteers in their own communities who are health educators to share information. We train them to be really the voices in their communities. So that's one big way is is through partnerships. And we have over 20 different partnerships with diverse organizations that already have the trust of communities. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. What a great way to start because they will go to the hospital and get help. Mm-hmm. They will go to doctors in their community. So having the, the frontline workers of the nurses just seems like a, a very intelligent way to address it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, The second is that we are listening. You mentioned community forums. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. That's exactly (laughs) what we're doing. In fact, over the past few years, we've been out in communities, although 
past two years, it's been virtually uh, because of COVID. But we've been out in communities. We've held over 600, actually, it's closer to 700 community forums, which are basically listening sessions. Mm -hmm. And almost 20,000 people have attended those forums. And we go in with several primary questions. First of all, how's it going? How's your caregiver journey? Do you have what you need? What are you lacking in this community? And then who are the pillars in this community who we can meet to talk about how to solve problems in these communities. So it's been interesting because a lot of what we've done is gone into underserved communities like Hispanic and Latino communities, and yet the information we get is so similar no matter what community. One of the very number one things we hear from people is we just don't have enough information. We don't know anything about Alzheimer's. Right. We don't know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. So we are working to really get education out there. So we do that through partnerships. We do that through listening to what are the specific needs and who are the, the key stakeholders in the community. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing we do is just what you said, make sure that people can access information in the way they need it. So we have spent um, the last several years – ensuring that people can go to our website and look at everything in Espanol. People can attend a class um, in their language, that people can get the information the way they need to learn it. And that, you know, um, there's a misnomer, I think, that if someone speaks Spanish and English, that surely they can learn it in English. But the truth is, if you are most comfortable in one language, that is where you will learn and retain information the best. So that's that's our job, I think, as an organization, to do what we can to get information out there in the way that people are most comfortable learning and that they can understand because it, it can be complicated, the ins and outs of Alzheimer's and dementia. So yeah. those are the three primary ways. Okay. You've given me an idea. Yes. I'm going to check with Blueberry, the company that puts out and distributes my podcast uh-huh. to iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, tune in on your television, and so on and so forth, and see if there's a possibility that we could translate it into different languages. Oh, what a great idea. Because last week, I just did another show on what what is dementia and what are the different types of dementia that we most commonly see and hear about and what causes them as far as we know and so on and so forth because I want my listeners to be educated. I've had now four seasons of shows, um, not including the uh, couple of years that I was on the radio um, now and now it being a podcast. I'm just this show is starting my fifth year. My oh, fifth congratulations. season. Yeah. So I I think that would be a good thing to do. So let's talk about a couple of other groups. Um, you mentioned the the black colored community mm-hmm. and what are their challenges? Yeah, I think you know, for black communities, um, boy, uh, hasn't it been just a tough couple of years? Yes, um, about 100. But, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right? And just some awakening. But the unfortunate thing is that black communities are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's. And so we know that we need to t- try twice as hard to educate, support, inform. But all of that goes back to earning the trust 
Right. Not just asking to be trusted, but earning the trust in black communities. So many people go into communities with their own agenda, um, with their own ideas of what they need to do. We don't want to do that. We want to go in and listen. We want to recognize. And I'm, I'm going to have some real talk here, so I hope your listeners can handle it. Yeah, please do. We've got to recognize the discrimination and racism that exists. It absolutely exists. Because when people say, well, my gosh, why are black communities twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's? You could have a surface answer, but once you follow the root of that, it goes back to discrimination and racism, Jill. And that's that, a lot of people don't want to hear that. That's, that's real talk they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. But the truth is if you look at why they have higher vascular rates, lower education levels, lower socioeconomic status, less trust of health professionals, less trust of researchers, it is all rooted in structural racism. And I know pe- some people are going to turn this off right now because they don't want to hear that. But I have learned so much just in the past few years of understanding, wait a minute, so why don't why don't black individuals want to be involved in research? Well, you know, there's a history mm-hmm. of black people being used as guinea pigs and being uh, suffering with diseases where there was already a cure, and they were not given the cure because that was a part of research. That was part of our lifetime. We're not talking 100 years ago. We're talking our lifetime, Jill. Absolutely. And case in point, it doesn't have anything to do with Alzheimer's, but even Georgetown, the university, they had several hundred black individuals, mostly men, that were uh, used as guinea pigs for, I can't remember exactly what the disease was, but um, Debbie Allen, the actress, Mm -hmm. the choreographer, and so on and so forth, she was on Finding Your Roots. And they discovered that her great-grandfather was a part of something that happened at Georgetown years ago. Mm-hmm. And if any of you need proof of this, just just Google Georgetown um, Black Men Experience or the name. Uh, and they named the building after some of the people trying to make it right many years later. I um, have made no qualms about it on this show that um, when I was in high school, I had a boyfriend who was black and the discrimination that that I felt and received. And I can tell you it is very real. It is very, very real. It is. So earlier this year, Jill, the Alzheimer's Association conducted two surveys and asked black communities, asked Hispanic communities, Um, What does Alzheimer's mean to you? And do you trust your health professionals? And do you have the information you need? And we published those in our 2021 Facts and Figures report. In fact, we had so much data returned that we published an entire separate, yes, we published an entire separate um, insert called Race, Ethnicity, and Alzheimer's. So you can go look it up. And it's, you know, It's exactly why I'm in my role at the Alzheimer's Association, because you know that saying that when you know better, you do better? Right. There is no, there's no clearer voice than that that we heard earlier this year saying we need help. We don't trust. Right. We don't trust our doctors. We don't trust our health professionals. We don't trust the nursing home. We don't trust the hospice providers. So what can we do for our communities? I was on a fabulous, um, 
partnership conference with the NFL Alumni Association. They're one of our national partners, and it was about black men's brain health. And one of the things that um, the gentleman from the NFL Alumni Association said is, oh, my gosh, I'm just learning today. This is our community. These are our people. We need to do something about this. He, he kind of had an aha moment right in the middle of this conference. And I think that's what we want. We don't want to come in and, and try to solve everyone's problem. We want to empower, educate, inform, and then convene the right people to get to the bottom of the issue and find solutions that will work for communities for the long haul, not just for this month. I don't know if it's possible. But I would love to partner with you in some way. I have listeners in all 50 states and D.C. and 67 countries. That's awesome. And I, people listen. They write me letters. I mean, my, my caregiver nation has just exploded over the years. And I'm always stunned at where I get my listeners from. And a big part of it is Africa. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so, yeah, I'm always pretty surprised when I, you know, look at my statistics and see how how dense it is of my listenership there. Now, we'll talk about that at some other yes. time, I hope, and we'll <laughs> figure out how we can make that happen. But another group that is impacted heavily with Alzheimer's is the gay and lesbian community mm-hmm. and transgender. And the list goes on and on, which I'm trying to learn the whole alphabet soup that <laughs> is associated with it. But we have worked together um, with a doctor at UCH, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Carey. Uh, that's her first name, by the way, you all. Uh, and um, we've talked about the... I don't even know. I can't. It's hard to find a word that adequately describes the way people are treated when they come in with their wife or their husband or their transgender person that they love. And the hospital doesn't recognize the marriage. Mm -hmm. The staff doesn't recognize the marriage. We are in 2022 and we are still dealing with this shit. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of it. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and you know, Jillis is near and dear to my heart because I have a wife and I have a transgender son. And, you know, so this is very personal Mm -hmm. for me. And so besides it being a professional interest, um, I don't want to see LGBTQ elders isolated. I don't want to see them not trusting the medical community. We have come a long way. We have to acknowledge that. But there is still such a long way to go. We know, you know, I hear stories from LGBTQ elders who need assisted living or need a nursing home, and they end up going back in the closet because they don't feel safe. They're they're afraid they will be treated differently. They're afraid they'll be judged. So imagine just trying to live your true life at the end of your life, Mm -hmm. but not feeling safe because you fear retaliation. And You know, a a lot of protections have been put into place for LGBTQ individuals, but that took a long time in our society as well. People can still get fired in some states for identifying as LGBTQ. Not long ago, people could be kicked out of the military 
for that. Um, right. so, you know, certain rights aren't afforded. So it's it's a um, again we partner with organizations who have gained the trust, and we listen to communities to see what they need. Um, but we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. Twenty twenty two, I think, will be a great year. Because I always feel like we build on the foundation Mm -hmm. of the year before. And I think we've all slowed down enough to open our eyes a little more Mm -hmm. and understand people are people. Well, I will tell my listeners that with my company, I have a pretty good mix, I think, of clients that come to me from the black community, from the Asian community, from the lesbian, gay, and transgender community. And I'm proud of that. I want them to be able to call me and know that I will help them and no questions asked and no eyebrows raised and nothing like that. I mean, we we have just seen the impact over and over and over again. And it was shocking to me that Dr. Carrie, like we were talking about, uh, Candlin, Dr. Uh-huh. Carrie Candlin is her name, um, She was trying to have a study and try to get the uh, gay, lesbian, transgender community to participate in the study. And it was like pulling teeth. Mm -hmm. And she is lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. And she's married to to her wife and still couldn't make inroads. So, you know. It's just that it's it's historically, you know, (laughs) people don't forget— when they have been persecuted, right? Whether we're talking about the Black community, Hispanic, Latino community, LGBTQ communities, people don't forget those things, and I, I think that that legacy lasts a long time. And all of the things that currently are happening, when you hear about a transgender uh, person getting killed, and it's considered a hate crime because they were transgender, and that's why they were killed, mm-hmm. um, that's happening today. That's not history. Right. That is happening today. So people people don't forget those things. And out of pure survival, people keep things close and they don't share. And it's a credit to you that you have so many people who trust you because you are that open-hearted person. Well, thank you. Absolutely. So, you know, for you personally, you mentioned that you're married and that you have a transgender son. And I believe in my heart that when you were promoted to the executive director of the Alzheimer's Association, it had nothing to do with your sexual preference. (laughs) No. And I sure hope it didn't, right? But but that was a huge step. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many people per se knew that, but I don't think it adversely affected anything. You're so well respected in the Colorado community and now nationwide, which I love. But that did afford you a chance to have a new job, a new job that is not just new to you. It's new to the organization. Yes. Right? And I really hope that that says something to people, that it has some impact. How do you think your job as the executive director and your job now, do you think it had any impact? 
You know, in that um, way? yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've I've been out and open um, my whole career at the Alzheimer's Association and have never felt that it put me in some kind of other category. And that included when I was promoted to lead our state here in Colorado. Um, so I, I felt like it didn't have any bearing on that. I feel like in my new role, it's actually a benefit because yes. I can take on a perspective that I might not have otherwise. And I think one of the most important things we can do is have empathy and when possible, um, imagine what it's like to walk in someone's shoes. And so I can't speak for the entire gay community. I'm one person. Right. Just like you can't speak for the white community. Right. <laughs> You're one person. Um, but I but I do think it has helped me be open um, and listen. And I think um, just understand that it's a much more complex issue than just one piece of a person. Mm-hmm. And that, again, we are people. Um, I can give you a great example. I remember the year that we brought some of our national partners to our big conference, and we brought the AME Church, which is a historically black church, a pretty conservative church, and we brought our partners with SAGE, which is our national partnership with the gay and lesbian uh, advocacy group. And to have them on stage together um, is sometimes a little bit unlikely, but what what was beautiful is— they both care about Alzheimer's and dementia, and they care about their people. And that's what brought them together. And it allows you to see things, I think, a little differently. I'm going to make a suggestion to you since you Tell spoke me. about the stage, because you know I'm nothing if I'm not a sales and marketing person, <laughs> right? This is a TED Talk. Oh, interesting. You need to apply for a TED Talk. Look at you. Yeah. Because you only get to speak about 15 or 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. and it has to be on something impactful, you know? And I think they would accept you in a New York minute. So you're the second person this year who told me I should do a TED Talk, so that's interesting. Yeah, well, start (laughs) applying, girl. (laughs) Watch a couple and figure it out, right? I think that would be wonderful. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Amelia Schaefer. And we have a lot to talk about because, folks, I've been telling you about my weight loss and get healthy program, and she was my inspiration. We'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988, to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. 
Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, I'm back and I'm with my good friend Amelia Schaefer. I love you, by the way. Happy I love New you, Year. Jill. Happy New Year. And she has a bit of a cold, so <laughs> she sounds a little scratchy. That's why. God bless you for coming in well, today when you're under the weather. I actually feel fine, and it's not COVID. Oh. I did my test. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So we were talking about, you know, how to train nurses and working with them in the Hispanic community. I remember back a few years now, when one of the main focus points from the Alzheimer's Association was to get information out to doctor's offices and even hospitals. And so, uh, you know, that was, it was kind of rolling along for a while. And then through Summit, Resilience Training, my company, we picked up the baton and we have trained uh, first responders. Um, and I've worked with a couple of emergency rooms and and a few uh, medical professionals uh, through that realm. And boy, do we need some work there because unfortunately, it is not uncommon for people at the holidays or when they're just frustrated or whatever it is, and even care communities, I, I'm going to call them nursing homes uh, that do this. Care communities mo- mainly wouldn't do it. But uh, nursing homes will sometimes take a person that is kind of behavior-ridden and drop them off on a Friday night at the emergency room and leave. Oh, yeah. yes, people, it happens. It absolutely happens. Educating... That group, I want to break it down a little bit, but let's start with those people that are on the front lines in the emergency rooms and how they deal with somebody. It's hard for a person with Alzheimer's or any cognitive impairment or memory loss to be in an emergency room. It's a nightmare. It's probably one of the worst places they can possibly be because everything is about saving lives in the emergency room. So even just the energy level is a sense of urgency. It is stressful. There are noises. There are lights. It is such a disorienting place. And um, someone with Alzheimer's can get up and just walk away. Well, and that noise and the lights and that energy is counterintuitive to everything we teach. Exactly. Slow it down. Limit the stimulation. Never overstimulate a person. And then because that person is is having a bit of a meltdown, they will hit them with Haldol or something else to just knock them out. Mm-hmm. Because if they have to be there and there's no place for those doctors. I have a niece who's a physician's assistant. And she said, Aunt Jill, we've had people literally just drop people off and we don't know what to do with them. Yep. Absolutely. It blows my mind. Well, and and you're right. I think the Alzheimer's Association was trying to work one doctor at a time, one emergency room at a time, and realized, oh, my gosh, we're going to get nowhere with this. So uh, something that I don't think we've talked about before is um, last year really dug into an entire health system strategy. Oh, I love that. Because we're one organization across the country. So why not work nationally 
with these big health systems because they're the ones actually dictating the kind of care happening across the country mm-hmm. in hospitals. Everything from the electronic health records to the protocols that are in place when someone with dementia walks in. So we're now working with these large, like Catholic Health Initiatives, Kaiser Permanente, large health systems to make true change that will then go to every single practice, whether it's the hospital system, the clinical practice, or beyond. And so this is taking some time to build, but I think 2022 is the year that we're going to see some some really exciting things happening. And if you want to learn more about that, I would love to refer you to our local health systems director who could talk about that next year um, or this year, I, 2022. I would relish that. Um, I have to give a little shout out to my friend Yvonne Holliday, who's been on the show a couple of times. She is the person who, through Catholic, Catholic Health Initiatives created the system where hospitals can talk to each other. Oh, yeah, she's yay, bro- Yvonne. She's brilliant. <laughs> I always joke. I, I I say it, and she thinks I'm joking. I embarrass her, but she's the smartest person I know, <laughs> and I love her for that. But yeah, that's great. I'm going to have to let her know that her little invention there is having some the impact that she wanted it to have. It's huge all along, and she still is a major speaker across the country on you know, health practices and so on and so forth. So way to go, Yvonne. Yes, and let's not forget our healthcare providers are still in a crisis right now. Our healthcare providers are drained and strained from COVID. You, you know, you can't turn on the news or read the paper without looking at the workforce crisis, right. particularly in healthcare. So it is a challenging time to be in healthcare. And we want to help people. We don't, we don't want to set them up for failure. We don't want to make their lives more difficult. In fact, we want to make it easier, right? Right. Because if it's easier to care for someone with Alzheimer's, it will be more of a joy to care for someone with Alzheimer's. Well, that is exactly right. And, you know, speaking of the healthcare workers, uh, things that um, nursing homes were doing as well, um, through COVID was if somebody tested positive, they would send them out to an ER and the ER would send them right back. Mm-hmm. And the community would say, uh, no thanks. And I had to help a couple of my clients with the ombudsman's office to say, that's their home. You can't keep them out. You Oof. must let them back in. Yeah. It, this I, has been a nightmare. It's, and a, it's a broken system. And when you add a pandemic on top of it, it just it shines a light on all those cracks, doesn't and it? And then it was totally affecting our people in memory units. Yeah. Completely affecting them where they had to stay in their rooms and so on and so forth. I, this whole thing has just been a mess. But, you know, what we try to do every day is help um, – really encompass what it means to be inclusive and to be open and willing to have those conversations. It's so overdue. It really is. And when you're talking about millions of people, millions of people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's and Related disorders, Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, which can relate in to, you know, uh, having memory loss. Both, you know, but all three of those, 
it's just overwhelming. And, you know, when we talk about uh, the gay and lesbian and transgender community, the black communities, the Hispanic communities, the people that just have memory loss in general, they are all part of a club that they don't want to be a part of where they are chastised, they are judged, you know, uh-huh. and, and how we change that perception is a $64,000 question. You know, you're so right. I think we've been talking a lot about Alzheimer's disease in the United States, but when you step back and take the global view, it is very different depending on where you go. And that stigma absolutely still exists. I have a pen pal who's a public health physician in India. We met over 20 years ago at an Alzheimer's conference. He now travels around all the remote parts of India educating people about Alzheimer's, but many times people won't talk to him because there's such a stigma. The family feels a sense of shame. Mm -hmm. They will often lock someone up in an attic or in a basement or in a room. So, So when you take the global view, you really do have to look at each country and their societal understanding of Alzheimer's and dementia. I mean, in some languages, Alzheimer's translates into crazy person. Wow. When you translate the word Alzheimer's. Well, dementia, the Latin the Latin word means without mind. Yeah, exactly. So so that stigma can be combated with doing exactly what you are doing, which is raising awareness, telling people stories, and talking about it. That is one of the best combatants to stigma is having people tell their story, talk about it, and then normalize it and understand that Listen, these are people. It's not that they did something wrong in a past life to get Alzheimer's. Some cultures believe that. Right. Um, it's not that somehow it's it's um, something in your family uh, that you're cursed. Some people mm-hmm. think it's witchcraft and that your family is cursed. So it's breaking down and talking about it, educating, and bringing that awareness. You know, last month I had Annabelle Bolin. Yes, that was a beautiful interview. Oh, thank you. And, and, you know, for her, as part of the ownership of a major National Football League franchise, to come on and talk about her father, Pat Bolin, the former owner, and he passed away in 2019, and her mom diagnosed six months before her dad died. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we worked together on that at the Alzheimer's Association when I said, hey, I think I have an in there. I'm going <laughs> to try and open that door for you all. And you took it and ran with it. And look look what, what we're doing now, right? But for them to be able to help with that destigmatizing is just incredibly important. Now, we're going to shift gears, unless you want to say one last thing. on. Oh. Well, no, I just wanted to say it is why it's important to tell your story mm-hmm. and why it's important to talk about it. And you don't have to be a Bolin family. Right. Now, that helps because they have quite a platform. Right. But talking about it to your church or your book club or your neighbors, small starts can change hearts. Oh, oh I love that. <laughs> small starts can change hearts. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> So, in the in the spirit of changing gears, in March of 2015, the Alzheimer's Association was reorganizing, and we went out to dinner 
And I said, I have this crazy idea. Tell me what you think, but I think I might want to start my own company to help families. And you encouraged me, and we brainstormed that night. And the rest, as they say, is history. This year, I'll be starting my eighth year since seventh year seventh year since that happened. That is amazing. Well, it was a no brainer, Jill. I love it. <laughs> Jill always gives me credit for um, her business. I'm like, this was a no brainer. She said, "What do you think about this?" And I said, "Absolutely." I mean, if anyone should be doing this kind of work, it's it's you, Jill, Aww. because you have the heart for it. You have the drive for it. You're willing to make the sacrifices. Uh, So it was just a no-brainer to me. Well, thank you. But I got a chance to pay you back for that because we were sitting at lunch. uh, And actually, we had talked on the phone or or Mm -hmm. in person or something. And I was saying, Amelia, you you have much more bigger platforms out there for you to explore. Yep. At this point, you can go anywhere and you can do a lot of things. So think about that. Yeah, you did. And then you called and said, hey, I had a talk with Harry Johns, and who is the big CEO of the Alzheimer's Association nationally. And lo and behold, you got this new position. <laughs> but while we were at lunch... For us, this was, but all of our major conversations like this always happen at Bonefish. I know it's true. <laughs> it is true. They need to give us a free dinner. <laughs> um, but uh, we were sitting at Bonefish, and I wanted to have some champagne to celebrate. And you said, "I'm sorry, I can't. I'm on a new health program, right?" And I have told my listeners about this Octavia health program I'm on. Mm-hmm. And I have to thank Amelia because I saw her that day. And when you walked in, you looked amazing. Uh-huh. And that was six months ago, right? Uh-huh. That's a long time ago. Uh-huh. So since then, I adopted the program and I lost 35 pounds. And then November 5th, I started a transition and have been able to maintain that transition for almost two full months now. Um, and I've only, I go back and forth, you know, two pounds one way or the other, right? Yeah. Between 125 and 127. And if I start getting up in the high 127 again, like 127.8, I'm like, okay, for a day I have to go back to my plan and, <laughs> you know, eat, eat that way. But it was a healthy program because I can't fast. Uh-huh. And you brought this to me. So tell my caregiver nation how you feel about Octavia, what attracted you to it. You know, for me, Dr. Potter had also said, Jill, gut health translates into brain health. Uh And he said, I think the world of you and you know it, but with your family's history, you need to lose a few pounds so you can give yourself a better chance to stave off this disease. I'm cringing cringing even hearing it. I think we all are cringing when you have a doctor tell you you need to lose weight. (laughs) Yeah, and he's a researcher, you know. He was just trying to help me out. And he didn't bring it up himself. I mentioned that I felt like I was a little overweight. I opened the door and, Uh you know. But anyway, talk to him about Octavia and what it means. I'm glad you mentioned that. So, you know, I knew I had some weight to lose. I probably had... 70 to 80 pounds to lose. And I had never talked to anyone about my weight. I was embarrassed. I was kind of ashamed. You know, I, I, I thought, gosh, I've had so much um, good in my life. But, 
you know, my family is all overweight and I'm sure that's what it is. Or I'm getting older, so I'm sure my metabolism isn't what it used to be. But I started watching on Facebook my friend Kathleen, um, who had been my neighbor, losing weight. And I knew she struggled with her weight for a lot of years. And she seemed so excited about it. So one day I was trying to climb up a set of stairs on vacation and I couldn't make it all the way. I was huffing and puffing. I had to take several breaks on my way up the stairs. And I thought, I have got to do something. You know, uh, I know better than this. I know that your brain health is directly related to your heart health. I know that if you are either have high blood pressure um, or diabetes, that those are factors that can raise your risks of getting Alzheimer's and other dementias. So I knew all of those things, but I just had to be ready. So I called my friend. She told me about the program. I said, sign me up. I want to do it now. And that was February 16th of 2021. I've lost 70 pounds. Wow. And I'm, I, it, it is really just a mindset shift. Um, but I'm sure that I was pre-diabetic. I'm sure I was, um, I was raising my risk of heart disease, which my dad had died at 59 from a heart attack, mm-hmm. as did his dad. So, you know, from a personal standpoint, just like your family's history of Alzheimer's and other dementia, um, I knew that, gosh, I I was starting to have a hard time even just getting up off the floor, walking those stairs. I was I didn't want to get my swimsuit and go out with my kids to the pool. So I knew there were many things that I needed to do um, to shift all of those parts of my life. So I just took a risk. I said earlier this week, I took a risk on myself. I took a chance. There you go. And yeah. I followed the program. And it's not just about your diet, but that's certainly a part of it. It's also about, you know, your movement, um, your your healthy mindset, you know, hydration. They're, they're, they have micro habits of health is what they call them because if it was just a diet, most diets fail. And right. I knew I did not want to go back. So I really researched to find the right program, and it has not disappointed, and it has made me so passionate that I've started helping other people like you and like my mom who was diabetic on insulin for over 10 years. And sure enough, it took me four months to talk her into the program, but she finally started. And within a month, actually within three weeks, she was able to go off all of her insulin. My mom's up to 52 pounds lost now. She's 70. So, you know, age doesn't matter. You're never too old. It's never too late. Um, And she feels, she said, I feel younger than I did 20 years ago. So, you know, it's been perfect for her. My teenage niece is on it. She's doing fabulous. You know, she wanted to be able to keep up with her friends. And that was her big thing. Um, And so she's, you know, I think it's more than just the weight. It's all of the things that come after it. The energy, uh, feeling comfortable in your own skin, the outlook on your future. Yeah, your positivity. Exactly. The ease with which it is to live now. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry every moment I leave the house, do I look presentable? Um, so it's it's the full thing. It's it's body, mind, and spirit. I I really think that's so cool because for me, after I saw you, and that was in the early summer, mm-hmm. yeah, and then my husband and I were going on hikes, and I have asthma, and the first quarter of mile, I wanted to quit, and then once I got going. I could go, and I could go about three miles. Now we're up to about five, 
my asthma's in good shape. I've got great control over it. Um, but like you, I was uh, struggling with how I looked. My clothes weren't fitting. 90% of the things in my closet didn't fit anymore because I had, had gone from a size 6 literally to a 14, and I was pushing 16. And I'm like, enough is enough. Uh-huh. I couldn't breathe. And for me, we went down to uh, it's Pike National Forest. It's, I have that behind my house, but it's a little further down off of Santa Fe. And you take this route that was pretty rocky and kind of all uphill. And when you get there, you can go up a set of ridiculous uh, s- expanding stairs mm-hmm. to get to a firehouse on the top. You know, one of those uh, in Colorado, we have these um, landing things are way up in the sky and they give a bird's eye view of all the mountains around and firefighters use those. And um, as I was going up there, I thought I was going to die <laughs> and just to get to it. And then by the time I actually got to the stairs, I thought literally I was going to pass out or something. And then when I got to the top, you know, it was it, it took my breath away and the wind and everything. And I was having a little bit of a hard time breathing. And I thought back to you talking to me about this. And I just like you said, I needed to be able to make that commitment. And it's been amazing when, uh, I have to tell you all, you're going to love this. When I pulled up today, I had stopped at Starbucks and I had a gift for Amelia and, and I had our Starbucks and stuff and, and, and one for Brian, by the way, my engineer, because you know, I love him. (laughs) Um, but we, uh, as I got out, I was like, wow, that's a stunning lady. And she's wearing this black sparkly outfit and she's got her hair up real pretty I didn't recognize her. You looked very Adele-esque. Wow. You really well, that did. That is a compliment. I didn't recognize her. <laughs> She's been one of my best friends for close to 20 years. And oh, my God, I didn't recognize you. That is amazing. And then she said to me, is that a new dress? And I said, nope, I've had this dress for 20 years. And today I was able to wear it. <laughs> I love that. It's all those little benefits that you just don't even think about, right? Yes. And from a health perspective, because we've had people say kind of stupid stuff to us, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, are you kind of body shaming people that are, you know, weighing more and stuff like that? No. The fact of the matter is I quit eating sugar and I quit for the most part eating bread and pizza and stuff like that. Um, if I have it, it's uh, few and far between, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this week, uh, this last weekend on uh, Christmas, um, I made a homemade lasagna, and I made it with almond flour this year. Oh, nice! Um, it's, so it's it's a mindset, and my body tells me and fights against what I put in it. Now, if I have sugar, my stomach's upset. Right. Yep. If I if I have too something that's too salty or something like that, or I have um, you know a lot of sour cream or something Mexican and everything, then uh, nothing. Nothing. I love Mexican food. <laughs> love and it loves me <laughs> to a degree. But when I have foods that my body has not had in a while, I don't feel well. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you hear that saying, "Food is medicine." 
I've never understood that before, but now I understand it because I have uh, osteoarthritis in my hands and they used to be stiff every morning when I woke up. And about a week into the program, I realized, oh my gosh, I can bend my hands. And I talked to my doctor about it and he said, well, yeah, you, you're eating in more of an anti-inflammatory way. I thought, wow. I was, and I was the person who said, I am so addicted to sugar. There is no way I can go without sugar. I had tried before. Me too. No way. But the problem is when you try to go without something, without replacing it with something else, right. you're, you're destined to fail. So you can't just take away. You have to add to and add the right things to your body, to your routine, to your mindset. The community alone um, I mean, we got to do this together, Jill. Yeah. I got to do this with my coach. I didn't have to try to do it alone. Right. I had her to call me and say, how's it going? And I'd say, man, I had a crummy day. And she said, tomorrow's a new day. Right. Right. And and that's part of it is having a community around you who does, it's not perfect, mm-hmm. but who is every day trying to be better. Well, I want to say, if anybody's wondering about this Octavia, when I first started it and you told me it was going to cost close to $400 to get my first uh, package of food, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a lot. But people, if you are thinking about this, I'm telling you, I went and um, went back into my bank statement and looked at how much I had spent at Safeway and King Supers in a month. And my food bill for the junk I was eating, the cookies, the chips, oh, my gosh, my entire cabinet was full of chips. Different kinds, Mm -hmm. you know, got to have different kinds for different sandwiches, two uh, loaves of bread in there and and milk and just a bunch of stuff. Not that milk is bad. Farmers out there, don't kill me. I love milk, (laughs) love milk, but I have gone to almond milk now, um, and I have to have lactose-free anyway. But but I realized I was spending about anywhere from $1,800 to $2,000 a month. So in getting the Octavia packages every month, and it filling me up, the the candy bars and the mm-hmm. um, brownies and the pudding and the little mashed potatoes I can have. And I love the cereal. I love the oatmeal, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm actually saving money every month. Yeah. My, my food bill has actually gone in half wow. from what I used to have. Yeah. Yeah, mine too. And and the thing is, I mean, these, these fuelings that you eat through this program, they're high in protein, low in carbs, low in fat, but some of them taste as good as the things you're eating right now, um, which right. is right. Like I have a brownie every night. I have a cappuccino every morning. So it's not, doesn't leave you feeling deprived or right. like, oh man, I miss all these things I used to eat because you, you do just feel so good. And the big thing for me in my transition is that when I get hungry for that sandwich at lunch, I just have one of the brownies mm-hmm. or the cinnamon swirl thing. So it's not no carbs. It's just low carbs. Mm-hmm. And as I have brought food back into my system, um, I'm eating a lot less. It's been a whole nutritional, healthy program for me. Because I have hypoglycemia and I can't fast. So being able to eat something every couple of hours 
really worked for me. So for those of you out there that are worried about getting Alzheimer's, you know I've had shows on it. We've talked about it till I'm blue in the face. But you have to do some things to make some changes. And, you know, I've never been on a diet. Uh, this is my first one ever. But it really, really worked for me. And like you said, I'm happier because I'm wearing clothes I haven't been able to wear in a long time. I like the smile on my husband's face when I walk in. He always thought I was beautiful, even when I was way overweight. Um, but uh, now he really does, and I like that, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, and I'm sure Sue feels the same way about I you, right? I think she does. <laughs> well, we're going to have to see what we can maybe do to partner and how I can use my platform with the thousands and thousands of listeners I have um, to see how we can reach some of the people. So I'm going to have you back a couple times throughout the year. And let's it. see how we can how we can, you know, work through some things and maybe have some additional guests on, you know, somebody from those communities so we can talk to people. And I'm going to find out if I can translate my show into different languages. I love that. I would Jill. love I would too. Yeah. Well Amelia, thank you. Always great to be here, John. Happy Thank New you. Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> happy 2022. And we're very sparkly, so we can feel really happy about the new year today. Well, I love you all out there in Caregiver Nation. Would love your thoughts on this show. Uh, you can go on my website, Summit Resilience Training, and you can put comments at the end of the show and so on and so forth. We would love to hear your feedback and what you think you need in your communities. What can we do to address your needs? I I always want to provide resources and, you know, a lot of good information for people. So we'll have you back soon, my friend. Sounds good, Jill. All thank right. you so much. And thank you, everybody. I'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.